If you guys obviously have been with us, then you know we've been going through uh, some of the epistles. I like to think about that. We've, liked, we've been seeing the, the work, the outpouring of what the Lord's Spirit had did, right? So we just finished a book to a church in Philippi, to the church in the Philippians in Philippi. And we see this, this wonderful work, as Brett said, that it's, it's like this, this wonderful work of the people uh, that's happening, this legacy that came from Paul, that came from the disciples, that came from Jesus, right? We see this glorious thing. And as I was reading, one of the things that, that really struck me again is this, this power that, that the Christian faith brought was as there were disagreements and there were things they didn't understand that they worked together. If you can imagine, it's probably the most almost foreign thing to us today for people to have a disagreement and to actually come together and something that they, they wasn't just a light thing. They were debating about what did Gentiles have to do? People who were not of the Jewish faith, now that the faith was going to them, what did they have to do? Did they have to follow these laws? Something that the Jews had had for thousands of years that came directly from the Lord. And some Paul was on the side that no, they don't. Some of the disciples that were with them, we think they maybe they do. And they came together and they actually came to an agreement. That, that might be the most miraculous thing I've read in the Bible in a while, considering where we are today. We can't even come together and agree uh, as a people, certainly as politicians, as a government about even the most basic of things. And so I consider that one of the amazing parts of the Lord's legacy in his church, people who can actually come together and disagree and learn how to agree or how to work through issues. And that got me thinking as we came to Father's Day, what, how do we like to be remembered? What is, what is a legacy the legacy that we have. And I want you to think when I talk about legacy, uh, sure, us as people, we worry, we think, we say, well, how will people remember me? But I'll tell you my heart and I think the heart of most of the fathers I know is not just how will I be remembered, really not at all will, how will I be remembered, but how will my kids, how will the things that I instill in them, that legacy, whether it's a legacy of success on this earth or a legacy of faith, how will that flow through? Will they continue to walk with the Lord? Will they continue to love people and be kind and be successful in whatever that means, right? That's this legacy. You may not care how much you're personally remembered, but you do care about how the training and the instruction that you give your children and even that you pour into your family, your wife, how that continues on. And when we think about that, we desire frequently the things if you said okay what's the legacy that you would want for your children you'd say strength I want kids who are strong they're willing to stand up against injustices and wrong and things that are not of the Lord or things that are just not right I want but I you might also say I want kids who are going to be wise right they're going to have not just a bunch of smarts, which we also want that, but we want wisdom. We hope that they have experience. We hope that they have good judgment. But let me start you guys with one first point and we'll jump in. Strength and wisdom, even if they're from the Lord, are not fruitful if they're practiced apart from the Lord. Strength and wisdom, even if from the Lord, they're not fruitful if they're practiced apart from the Lord. And today I want to look at Two figures, maybe we'll call it three, but I want to really start with the life of David. Hopefully you're familiar with David's life. A man after God's own heart, this, this giant of the Old Testament, the, this, this monumental figure in the Bible. Um, and I want to see, because he, he's a key person in, the trait, in, in one of these traits. And so we'll start. David, what did the Bible say about David? He was a warrior, right? He, he spread God's kingdom or the, the nation of Israel, he put their enemies aside. He was so successful in combat, but he was also a man after God's own heart, right? He wasn't just a conqueror. He was sensitive to the calling of the Lord. He was, he was always sensitive in the spirit. He was reaching out. He was praying. He was, he was gentle when he could have been rough with Saul, right? He was this amazing man. And we, if you aren't familiar, and I'm not going to go through his whole life, right? But he defeated Goliath when he was little, when he, he was a young boy, a shepherd with stones, right? He actually ended up serving Saul, who was the first king when they demanded, Israel demanded that they had a king like all the other nations. And ultimately Saul saw that the Lord passed from him because of the way that he was acting, the way that he was rejecting what the Lord had called. And the Lord passed the throne to David. 
And David ended up running for years in the wilderness with his, ultimately with his men. They called his mighty men of valor. He, he fled in the wilderness from Saul for years, even finding himself in situations where he could cut a little piece of Saul's cloak or his coat. And he could have obviously taken his life and said, Saul, I, I spared you because I know that you're the Lord's man, right? And so after all that and the Lord, the, the throne passes from Saul and passes to David, we'll start. And if you guys would join with me and it'll be up here as well, but turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 18. This will be a bit where we'll work from. We're not going to really work through an, a straight passage this morning. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. I'll be reading from the ESV as we traditionally have been doing. It says, this is the Lord speaking through his prophet to David. He says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And pay attention here. It said, closes, the Lord closes here and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Guys, this is an incredible, I would even say to us fathers and parents, an enviable set of promises and a calling that the Lord places on David's life as he takes the throne. How much I would wish that the Lord would speak to my children and not because of the power, but because of just the clear, just the way the Lord was acknowledging David and who he was, raising him up, saying he's going to bring peace. He's going to spread the kingdom, that there's just going to be all these things, right? What do we see, right? We see that he's going to, the Lord's promises to David, he's going to make his name great. We look at verse 9. If we look at verse 10, he's going to establish a home. Israel at this time had been wandering. They had finally come into the promised land, but they had been fighting and attacked from all sides. They had not known peace. And the Lord says, in you, I'm going to bring to my people peace. He's going to keep them from oppression, from this, this coming in and this fighting. He's going to give them rest. He's going to give David rest from his enemies. If you looked at verse 11, and he's going to establish a house. For David through his offspring. So the Lord was promising to David, you are going to have a great legacy. Right? He said he's going to allow David's son to build him a temple, to God's temple. The Lord, remember, had been in a tent and, and that, didn't, that, that wasn't of poor renown. It's not like this Coleman tent you got at Walmart and they, you know, they discounted tent. The Lord had given them very specific instructions and they had this, this beautiful tent that they carried and they set up, but the Lord moved with them. And it was a beautiful picture for the nation of Israel as they were moving around, that wherever they went, the Lord was with them. But now he said, I am going to plant you and give you a place. Through you, David, the legacy of my people is going to have, there be a nation with their own place and you're going to build me a temple and I'm going to be with you. And your son is going to do that. And the Lord says in verse 15, he's never going to take his love from David or his offspring. And then, like I said, that last concluding thing, he tells David, your kingdom, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, guys, we're, if we cut to the end, we know there's not a kingdom of David today. There's not a, an heir of David in Israel on the throne, on a throne there. So what happened? I guess we'll, we'll come back to that later, but... Did the Lord, that something seems off, right? He promised this amazing legacy to David 
a legacy not just for him, but for his family. And not just a, a, a legacy of triumph and wealth, but of one that was going to be peace and stability and, and just his spirit flowing through. And if we look at David, if you guys, like I said, if you don't know, he was the epitome of a strong and a successful leader. He did something that the nation of Israel didn't have for generations, right? But that didn't exempt David from the challenges of the flesh, the things that we also deal with. And God was aware of those challenges, not just for David, but for all of his people, for all of, his, of the kings that they would have. And remember, if you may not, or maybe you never knew, but God actually didn't intend for Israel to have a king. His, his beautiful picture uh, for the nation of Israel was that they would have judges. That sounds weird, but they would have people who could, they could go to to discern through right and wrong, good and evil according to the law. But they, he didn't desire a king. He knew that a king would bring with it Challenges because of the traditions of all the nations that were around them, what a king usually represented in power and wealth and the things that, that they expected. That was not the Lord's desire for the nation of Israel, but he allowed it. He even made provisions for it. And eventually, as the Lord said, the people cried out. So they have this period, they're in the promised land, they have these judges, they're seemingly going along well, and they cry out, Lord, we, we demand a king, we want a king, we want to be like everyone else. And the Lord knew that. And so because of that, he provided some specific instructions to the kings for the protection of the people and for the protection of the king's heart. Let's see what he told Moses concerning this inevitable king. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14, right? This is the Lord now speaking through Moses about the future king that he said they were going to want. And he said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, And you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. And if we jump to verse 17, some specific stuff might seem like pretty obvious to us, but in their time. He said in verse 17, and he shall not acquire, and this is talking about the king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Right? God was preparing and protecting. He provided these directions because he knew that this would be a challenge for those people. And David, as he comes to become the king, he would have been well aware of these commandments that had come through Moses. They passed these down. They they, they studied the words that Moses recorded, the law, and they, he would have been very well aware But do we see David heed those? No. It's not that he totally rejected them, but he looked at the customs of his time. He was a man of his time. And in the customs of the world at that time, and and likely some of his earthly desires, he allowed some disobedience to come in. And so we'll talk about our second point, which is we must be careful to weigh the customs the trends, the traditions of our time against the word of the Lord. Fathers, as we look at the way that we function and interact with our wives, with our kids, with society, we can't, we can't forget that we're a product too of this time. We want to be not of this world. The Lord tells us, he instructs us that, that we're not of this world. When we get God's spirit, we're not of this world. But we still have to be careful to weigh these things that we take for granted, the things that we see, the way that people live their lives, the way that we live our lives in society and weigh that against the commandments and the guidance that we get from the Lord. And if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, again, should be up here on the screen, right? We know that David knew this because the, the Bible specifically tells us, it said, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And what do we see David do? Why is these together? I don't know. It's kind of strange. But it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. That sounds weird. That sounds weird to us. We don't live in a time with a tradition of our kings, our leaders, our fathers taking multiple wives. But if we step back and we look into those times, what were the customs and the traditions at that time? Was, was David just doing something that would have felt like us today? You know, I have concubines and wives. That sounds like, that sounds terrible in our modern times. But in David's time, this was not unusual, especially not for a king. 
right? These marriages, if we look at some of the notes I was looking at, it said these marriages, they reflect David's involvement in international treaties and alliances, which were sealed with the marriage of a king's daughter to the other participant in the treaty. David likely thought of himself as being a good king. He looked at the kings. He looked at the way that that kingdoms conducted themselves. He wanted peace. The Lord said he was going to have peace. And he said, okay, I should take these wives. And I'm not just taking them because they fulfill my flesh. I'm making treaties and covenants with these other kingdoms. I'm going to bring peace. But the Lord, he knew, had warned him against that. And we might say, well, what were concubines? That sounds, you know, to me, that sounds like he took prostitutes. What was that? But concubines were really wives who didn't have quite the same legal rights as another wife. So it's not what we would know today as like a prostitute or just something for physical pleasure. But it was, it was a wife, but a wife of lesser standing. And you might see the status, or you might not know, or you may know, but the status of kings in this time was often measured in part by the size of their harem, their collection of wives. So it wasn't just their treaties, it was also a matter of stature. And I can imagine David feeling like, okay, I want to be a king of renown, like these other kingdoms that I see. I don't want to be like them. I have the Lord, but I want to be a king, a king of renown. But guys, this meant nothing in God's accounting. He didn't need collections of wives or size of wives and treaties to make happen the promises that he had given David. Right? What David was doing was normal, but God knew better. And we see this, and let's put that in our minds, right? Because that plants a seed in David's life. He's planting a seed in the life of his children, in the life of his offspring, right? He's establishing for himself a legacy as a king and as a father of how he's going to conduct himself and how he's going to follow the Lord's commandments. Let's look at another part of David's life, right? You might know, you might, this is probably even almost the more common thing known about David, right? Is David, after he had all these wives, he had been king for a while. They were still going out in conquest and he had sent out his armies and they were fighting on one of their fronts. And David stayed back. Now he's, he's a king for a while. He's got leaders of his army. He doesn't have to be there whether he should or not, but he's now finding himself staying back in, in the city. And one day he's, he's up on, out on his, his deck, whatever, and he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. Now, mind you, the same David who he just said, he took many wives and treaties and concubines. He has a, a collection, a harem of, of wives at this point. And he's out one day as his army's out and he sees a beautiful woman bathing and he asks, who is it? And they say it's Bathsheba. And it turns out that it's the wife of a, one, a leader in his army named Uriah the Hittite. So even possibly somebody who was not of Jewish or is, is part of the nation of Israel originally. He was a Hittite. That's another nation. But saw the truth of David's God, of the true and living God, and became and gave his life to the service of David and to the service of the living God. He's out fighting with David's army. And David's home and he sees his wife... The goats are released. A ball falls. Another ball falls. (laughs) Release the goats and the balls. Right? David sees the wife of one of his leaders. He sees a beautiful woman and he says he wants that. And so he goes to Bathsheba or he calls Bathsheba to him and they, they lay together and she becomes pregnant. They start into this sinful relationship and her husband's out on the battlefield. And David's like, okay, what am I going to do? Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now he's like, "Uh uh-oh, now what am I going to do? And so he calls back Uriah back from the battlefield and he's talking with him and he's trying to, um, you know, convince him that he should go enjoy and spend some time with his wife in hopes that Uriah will lay with her and then think that this is his child. And Uriah is so committed to David and to his men that when David sends him to his wife and says, here, take some wine and go see your wife, Uriah doesn't even go into his wife because he says, my men can't go into their wives. I'm not going to go into my wife. I'm going to sleep on the doorstep. And so David's plan there to cover it up is foiled. And so he sends instructions with Uriah back to the leader of the army and says, I want you to go and push Uriah and his men that he's leading into the most fierce part of the battle. And when the battle gets really fierce, I want you to pull back and leave Uriah on his own that he might get struck down. David, we just read just a few minutes ago, these promises that the Lord gave him, this amazing legacy that the Lord wanted to do through him in David and through his his sons. And now we see him 
leaving a committed man of his army. He sends instructions with that very guy. He doesn't read the instructions to the, to the front lines and says, hey, leave this guy basically for dead. And sure enough, what happens, they, they press forward and they leave Uriah out there and he's struck down. And David now feels free to take Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. The, God, the Lord didn't miss that. And I won't go and read, but the Lord then sends Solomon, or sorry, sends a, a the prophet at the time, he's blanking on his name, but he sends the prophet in and he, he gives this story and David gets super mad because he says, who would do that? And, and the prophet says, it was you. And David is pricked in his heart, right? David was within his bounds as the king to pretty much take, in an earthly sense, whatever he wanted. I mean, it would have been terrible if he had that sense of the Lord in his heart that this is terrible, I can't take another man's wife and certainly not a devoted man of my army serving my army's wife yet he didn't resist his desires he was within his bounds but God knew the dangers of the heart that could come along with such power right that's why we see these directions for kings and so we see that now we've seen that this is just a couple things and David of course maybe a little unfair to him he has chapters and books of his faithful crying out to the Lord and following the Lord but he was not a man that was without the challenges that we see. And so now we'll see what is that leg- what happens to that legacy as he passes that on to his son, right? So Bathsheba gets, gets pregnant, as I told you. Ultimately, the first baby that she conceived in this sinful thing, she loses. The Lord says, You're, this baby's not going to make it. But ultimately, her and David do conceive a son. And he has many sons with his wife. But he has a son with Bathsheba named Solomon. And you've probably heard of Solomon. Solomon's known as being like, we'll call him Solomon the wise leader, right? So we see as we get, sorry, get my thoughts together, but Solomon is this wise leader. He's renowned for his wisdom. But as we see him, as David gets to the end of his life, he's, he's now an old man. Solomon's, you know, coming up and David's ready to hand the throne off. And, and David's a lot like I think we are as we get old, right? And I can call it to Jeff, he'll tell me if I'm right as we get older. But in the maturity of our life, right, we begin to see more of the folly of our earthly pursuits and our earthly hopes for our kids that they can get money, that they can get fame, that they can have power, that they can move up. It's not that those things don't have any value for the Lord's kingdom, but the, the focus we have when they're, when they're young and when we're young and the way that we see as we get older, right, we focus more to the eternal benefit. And we start to realize as, as our life comes to the end that we're not going to take those things. Our money, our fame, our renown won't matter in just a short time. And now we think about the benefits of this eternal relationship with the Lord. David was no different. If we now look at Solomon, as David passes the charge of king to Solomon, his son, we can go to 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2, right? This, this beautiful transition from David to Solomon. And he says... I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Guys, the connection, the very direct connection in David's mind between a faithful walk with the Lord and the promised enduring legacy of faithfulness and faithful walking with the Lord that he had were very clear to David as he comes to here basically his deathbed. He doesn't say to Solomon, hey, make sure you take more wives, you make more treaties, you gather more power and more fame. He says, make sure that you walk faithfully with the Lord. And to David's great credit, that's actually what we see described in the heart of his son, Solomon. So now I'm going to ask you to turn with your Bibles. Lots of verses this morning. If you have a Bible, if you don't, you're going to have to listen to me, right? But it's going to be 1 Kings 3. Chapter th- starting in chapter 3. 1 Kings 3, starting in chapter 3. Listen to this description of Solomon. It says, Solomon loved the Lord 
walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So that's not even saying something bad. The high places, they didn't have still a temple. And so he was only sacrificing at the right place. He wasn't sacrificing the wrong way, right? Only at the high places. It says in continuing to verse four, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And listen to this. God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. And he wasn't really like a little child, but he was, this, this is like a metaphor. He's young and inexperienced, right? I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted the mul- for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Guys, like if, I, if you could ask me if my, my son, my daughter, my sons and daughter ever have a conversation with the Lord and he says, ask of me what you want. And they said, they don't say, I want power. I want some money. Hey, could you get me this job? I really like a, a nice house in Maui like my dad always wanted, right? If they say, Lord, I'm, I see the way you walked with my dad in faithfulness and my dad walked in you. I just want to be a wise and discerning leader of your people. I want to be a responsible steward. My goodness, how, would, how proud would you guys be of that, right? That's the legacy that you hope to see in your children, that they come to the Lord in meekness and humility and, and not asking for riches or power, but wisdom and discernment. And God received the request from Solomon the same way that I just described to you, in excitement. He was, he was thrilled. So let's continue if you keep going in verse 10, 1 Kings 3.10, it says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my, my, my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Guys, again, this is what you'd hope. They ask, he, Solomon had a, a humble request, a trite of heart. He wants to just be a discerning leader and God acknowledges that. He's like, I'm gonna make you that beyond what has ever been seen and more. I'm gonna give you the things you didn't ask for, right? David, of course, has passed, but I, I, he would have been ecstatic as a father to see how he, the Lord was gonna work in, in and through his son. And we see it in the Bible. The, the, I won't go through everything, but guys, if you read, Solomon's wisdom and his wealth was prolific. He built, ultimately built a great temple to the Lord. That was, it's legendary. You may have heard the legendary temple of Solomon, this archeological mystery that's not yet been found, right? But it was it, in the amount of gold and the amount of cedar trees, which were valuable at the time. It was unmatched as a building. People coming from all over to contribute because of Solomon's great power. He had lavish food. He had lavish wealth. If you read through, they talk about how much gold. They literally give you how much gold. He had gold everywhere. The walls, the floors, they had shields of gold. Solomon's wealth was was beyond measure. The food was beyond anything that they needed. He ended up having a huge, large army. His, His reign went far and wide, right? The verse 29 actually says that he had wisdom and understanding beyond measure and this I love, breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. My goodness, if I could have somebody say that my children had breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, I'd be like, wow. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, right? How many Proverbs have you spoken? He spoke 3,000. 
Right? We struggle to ever think how anybody could write a song. He wrote a thousand and five, a very specific number, a thousand and five songs. And people and kings from all over the known world and the known earth at that time came to hear his wisdom. Right? There's a legend. That's not a legendary. There's a recorded story of the Queen of Sheba, this, this powerful kingdom coming just because of what she had heard. Solomon's wealth and wisdom was unlike had ever been seen. The Lord was faithful. It's amazing. You'd say, okay, wow, Kevin, just pour into your kids, tell them to follow the Lord, and it's going to be great, right? But along with his love for the Lord, Solomon had also inherited some of his father's fleshly shortcomings, right? And how, how often is that, that you see that as a parent, right? You're like, I want to model these things. I want to read the word. I want to serve. I want to, I want to have a spiritual, I want to have the spirit in my house of, of the Lord. And what do you see in your kids? They see, you see your, your shortness, your anger, your whatever. You see, you see these things that you're like, oh, Lord, no, I didn't want them to take that. I wanted them to take these, these good things that I'm modeling. You even tell them, like, I'll tell my kids, hey, this is something that I have that's not good. You guys shouldn't do that, right? But what do we see? Those are the things, along with the good stuff, that we find in our kids. And that Solomon was no different. In 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 1, what do we see happen? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning from which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these, these wives in love. So he wasn't just taking even wives. The Bible says he loved his wife. And when we read this next sentence, it said, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Guys, I don't know how you love really all of those people. I struggle to love well my one wife. And I, this would blow my mind. I would just be beyond. But the Bible even actually records that, that Solomon actually clung to these thousand women in love. And it says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Guys, just as his father... Solomon had disregarded the Lord's commandment against taking many, a thousand. It's not even like he, he missed the mark by a little bit, right? A thousand wives. And he specifically took these wives from foreign lands. Again, we said this was not uncharacteristic. It was probably for treaties. We see it was actually very uncharacteristic. Egypt had never given a princess of Egypt to another nation. And Solomon's first wife was actually the, the daughter of the Pharaoh in Egypt. They historically and archaeologically, this was monumental because it, it indicated that Egypt was actually, at, for the first time in, in that history, not the most powerful place, that they would give the daughter of Egypt to another kingdom. There was some deference to that, right? So this was, was real earthly power and influence, but the Lord had, had warned against it and David had ignored it or had not taking it fully to heart. And now we see Solomon doing the same thing. And what did the Lord say would happen? They would turn his heart away. Did they come? I don't know. Did some of them come to intentionally turn his heart away? I don't think so. Maybe a couple. I mean, of a thousand, you're bound to have uh, all fla flavors of different things. But I think most of these wives in these political treaties came and they had their customs and their traditions and they had their gods. And Solomon wasn't ministering to each of these wives and teaching them about the, the, the tr one true God of Israel Instead, what happened? Solomon's wives, rather than following that true God of Israel, they worshiped false idols. And what had started as a means of political advancement and royal tradition ended up taking Solomon's heart away from the Lord. Right? How often do we, we look at that? We say, oh, this, you know, we'll dabble this or this thing in society or this tradition. It's okay. It can be harmless and it, maybe it can. And then before we know it, it's pulling your heart away from the Lord. Right, so we'll look at our, our third kind of point here, right? And it says, sin has earthly and spiritual consequences, right? Sin has earthly and spiritual consequences. What happened now? So did Solomon, with this great wealth, this great temple, this great influence, a thousand wives, the, prince, the princess of Egypt and all these things, you'd think, okay, he continued on. And for generations, he continued on. 
That's not what happened. The Lord was long-suffering with Solomon because of his promise to David and even beyond Solomon. But it didn't mean that he was going to keep him on this earth, on the throne. David misunderstood or didn't fully grasp what the Lord was promising. And so what do we see as Solomon comes to the end of his life? The people reject his son, Rehoboam, right? And shortly after Solomon passes, the kingdom of Israel, this vast kingdom with all this wealth that I just described to you, is torn in two. And most of the kingdom, the northern kingdom, what is called, it was called Israel, goes with another king named Jeroboam. Why they were her- two names that were almost the same, I, I don't know. The Lord likes to mess with us maybe, but Jeroboam took the northern kingdom. He was not even of Solomon's line, of David's line. He came from Egypt. He had fled and came back and took the whole northern kingdom. The, those people rejected Solomon. And, and Solomon's heir, Rehoboam, found himself with this much smaller southern kingdom of Judah. And what did he do? What did Jeroboam do in in Israel? He was not committed to the Lord. He instituted widespread idol worship. Let's look at what happened. 2 Kings 17.21 should be here, right? It says, when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So (laughs) what happened? David rises. The Lord makes this promise. He's going to bring peace. He's going to give them land. And in two generations, not even one generation Solomon, and by the time Solomon's son, most of the whole portion of what was Israel turned away from the Lord and the Lord ultimately within that generation the Assyrians come in and take them literally take the the nation of Israel out you might say well what happens then but because the Lord made this promise what happened in the southern kingdom in Judah and to Solomon's heir so well as we said he was reigning in that smaller southern kingdom and Judah also did evil in the sight of the Lord Solomon did not pass that, that desire, or maybe he tried and, and Rehoboam didn't feel it or accept it, but Rehoboam, they started worshiping false gods in the southern kingdom. Now, the Lord was long-suffering with the, with the southern kingdom because he loved David. He acknowledged, uh, as my wife and I were talking about this, she reminded me, as, as she's going, you see, for years and generations and kings that the Lord, they'd have a, an evil, wicked king and the Lord would punish him and then have a king who would, who would repent and the Lord was long-suffering, many generations longer in the southern kingdom. But ultimately, the Lord's patience ran out. And after a cycle of wicked and, re- and then repentant kings of Judah, he couldn't bear their sin any longer. And let's see what happened to that southern kingdom. In 2 Kings 25, 21, it says, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Guys, two generations, the vast kingdom of David is torn in two. The northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians. The other portion, the, lower, the, the lesser size, uh, turned away from serving the Lord. And vast of their amounts of their wealth was gone shortly after that. The, king of, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt came up and took it. And, and then shortly, many, a few generations later, they're gone. And when we say they're gone, I will tell you guys that even until modern times... It, they were so gone from the world's record that historians, even into the 90s, debated if David was actually a real figure existed. Or was he a myth, like a King Arthur, embodying what they, they, they wanted to give as an example, but a mythical figure. Was he even real? And it wasn't until some findings in the 90s that they're starting to find examples uh, or, or artifacts in archaeological finds that reference back to the king of David and, and start to give confirmation to what we know to be true from the Bible. But why do I tell you that? In two generations, three generations, five generations in the southern kingdom, David's earthly kingdom and legacy was gone. It wasn't even just that they weren't following the Lord. They were literally gone. The, Israel, the nation of Israel had been taken from their land into foreign lands and they were gone. So you might say, wow, okay. This is a pretty great Father's Day message, Kevin. (laughs) 
you try to instruct your kids in the Lord, they're going to follow the worst parts of you. They're going to be gone. Your legacy is going to be toast in a few generations. But no. If we look at it through earthly eyes, then yes. But we have hope in Jesus, and so did David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had strength and he had conquest unparalleled. Solomon had wisdom renowned through all the kingdoms of the earth. Yet those earthly abilities were not sufficient to secure their legacy. But God had promised that David, he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what's, what, what gives? Was this a lie? Certainly not. In the words of Paul, certainly not. Through Jesus, we have access to be part of the Father's great plan legacy for his creation. Which is what? To, to have a vast kingdom, to have wealth and to have great influence and renown? No, it's to be reconciled and to live forever with him. So how was David's promise fulfilled? It was fulfilled in Jesus. The Lord had said to David, You're, you will reign on the throne forever. And I think, and I, we don't know, but I think David believed that meant, well, me and my sons will be king in Israel forever. But that's not. God's plan was way bigger than that. He didn't care how vast the kingdom was. He didn't care how much wealth they were going to have and how much renown. He wanted to reconcile all of his people. This was not a story just for David and for, the, for this nation of Israel. This is a story for us. And if we look in Matthew 1, we just went through Matthew and you can go back in Matthew 1, the genealogy, that part you skip over, not because you don't love the Bible, but because it doesn't make sense or why is it there? That's there to show you in Matthew that Jesus had legal standing through Joseph, who was his legal father on the earth, going back to the line of David. And if you went into Luke, in Luke 3, that genealogy is different. And that might be interesting to you if you never realized that. But that genealogy traces Jesus' blood through his mother, his blood lineage, also back to David. The heir that the Lord had promised would be on the throne, not of this earth, but the throne of heaven for eternity was fulfilled to David through Jesus. And so what's the application? Well, for us, the greatest legacy that we can have as a father is a life centered on a relationship with the father. Not this father, but the eternal heavenly father. God's plan legacy for his children is clear. Not go into the world and make kingdoms and gather wealth and renown, but to go into the world and make disciples. And if we're able to instill this in our children and our families, then we can claim just a, just a small portion of the work that the Lord did and wants to do and continue to do through his son, Jesus. Guys, this is an enduring and amazing legacy, not one that's bound by our imagination, but wildly beyond that. I told you kind of what got me thinking about this as I thought about it was this great legacy within a generation, with, with, when Jesus was here, his disciples, they went from being simple fishermen, being men of no renown, right? It did say when they were prophesying, aren't these guys from Galilee, right? This is like, who are these guys? And they wrote the scriptures that we're still reading today. Paul, in this miraculous conversion, goes out and starts the church and passes it beyond the borders of Israel into all of us, right? The heritage that we have, that legacy that we can be a part of, right? And it all started with this most simple of men on the earth. And I'd love to kind of close us out with this because this was like, to me, this description by a guy, a reverend, a guy named Reverend James Francis. And you may have heard this. This isn't something I'm, you know, magic that I found. Uh, but this humble roots of Jesus and the incredible leg legacy that he had in his sermon called Arise, Sir Knight, it said, and this won't be on the screen, so listen. Talking about Jesus, it said, here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher, meaning somebody who went town to town talking. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, 
the tide of, po- of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19 long centuries at the time he wrote this have come and gone. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Guys, we don't need the things that we think on this earth. And this isn't a message to say that you shouldn't encourage your kids to do well in school and to seek to, to have careers and all these things. That's, that's not what this is, this is saying. I believe those are tools that the Lord uses to take us into all society, right? When he says, go into all the world and make disciples, well, you have, to, you have to get access into those places, right? That's what I think about as I go to Apple and people think, oh, Silicon Valley, it's been denied, the Lord has left. But I know there are thousands of Christians every day who walk into Apple Park, into San Diego UTC Apple office and who go into the shops and the schools and the universities and all the places that we go. Lord, this is not teaching you guys that your kids should be just unlearned, unworking, lazy people. No, but I want you to change your vision. Fathers, I want you to change your vision because it was not those things. It was not great wealth and conquest that influenced us. It was the life of a simple man. And yes, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we don't understand that, but we know he was fully man. And through his simple life, never walking in a city, never leaving, going far, we now through 19 centuries or more, he's the focal for most people. What a legacy that we have and to be a part of, right? And we saw that and we've seen that in the studies we have. Praise God that our lives and legacies are knitted into this perfect plan. You guys join with me and let's pray as the band starts to come up. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these stories, Lord. Thank you for these examples. Thank you for this knowledge that you give us, Lord. We pray that you would turn our minds. If we've placed too much value in the successes of this earth, Lord, if we believe that your legacy is going to carry through wealth and through conquest and through influence on this earth, Lord, and we lose sight that you were lowly and humble of heart, that you didn't ask us to follow the example of David in power or the example of Solomon in wisdom and influence and wealth. You asked us to follow the example of your son who came as a humble servant who was constantly in communion and communication with his father, who didn't follow the traditions of the day because they were the traditions, but who challenged them, who went into the temples and rebuked the things that had poured in that were not of you, yet who followed and respected the leaders at the same time while still challenging them. Lord, we pray. Today I pray for the fathers that are here, Lord, that you would give us eyes that we would instill this and we would model this for our children. Lord, that you would give us hearts for people that we can model to our, to our children and to our families, Lord, that hearts of just love and appreciation, that we wouldn't look at the earth and your people on this earth that you love with disdain for the things that they are not, but we would see them with your eyes. We would see them not as a tool to get ahead or to stake a place in this world, Lord, but we would see them as a soul, as a unique person, as a unique just soul that you want to connect with. Lord, I pray that our legacies would be enduring, but I pray that it would be enduring not because of stone and concrete and money and paper and gold, Lord, but it would be enduring because of the blocks that we 
lay in your foundation. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we can say that South Point was one block in this foundation and this influence that you want to have for the the world, Lord. I thank you that each of us then make up a part of that. Lord, I pray that you would just work in our children, that we would have a legacy that would be of you, of going into the world and of making disciples, people who are wanting to follow after you, not people who are perfect, who don't sin, who don't struggle, who are not influenced at all by this world, Lord, but who are not of this world, they're of you. And Lord, I also want to take a moment this morning to remember as we take today and and really in recent times to celebrate and we think June 19th, it's a day that we in the United States now can stop and remember the end of a terrible portion of our history, Lord. And that slavery, it took years, this institution that was here, Lord, it took years for that word to get to. And June 19th, the last word made it to the Southern portion of Texas. And this terrible institution finally could be completely abolished. People could know they were free. Lord, free on this earth to match with the freedom that they had in you. Lord, I, don't, I just pray that you would, that would be uplifting. I think of the, the legacies that were quenched, that were the families that were separated, the fathers that were not influential in their sons. And Lord, I'm so thankful that that time has passed I pray that you would continue to do a healing in those communities and in our nation, Lord. And I pray that we would be a part of that, that we would be people of love and of hope. Lord, that all that we would meet our African-American brothers and sisters who, if they still don't feel that those things, they don't feel that connection, Lord, that we could be a part of that healing. So I thank you. I know in my life, so many friends and mentors that I otherwise would not have had, Lord, that have spoken to me, that you have spoken to me through them. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we take a moment to recognize and celebrate that as well today. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. We just pray that you would be with us as we move into this time of worship. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.